You're listening to the James Faith in Jesus Work Series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. There's a quote that we often use said by A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'm sure you've heard that quote many times before. He went on and he said, For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So the most important thing, according to Tozer, is what we think God is really like in our heart. Because from what we think God is like in our heart, that is where our actions and our words and our attitudes, all those things flow from what you believe to be true about God. Because men and women are filled with sinful desires, passions that war against God, we often come to the conclusion that God is against our joy. That he is anti-fun, anti-pleasure, anti-joy. And this is just natural. For people who like to do things and we think that those things are going to bring us joy, as soon as someone says, you shouldn't do those things. You shouldn't do those things in that time, that way. We say, you just must not want me to have fun. You just must want to ruin my life. God stands in the way of what we desire. And this is a hard misconception of God to shake because our flesh seems to confirm it often. Uh, Spencer this week came to Tara, and it was the way he comes to her and tells her these things is really funny because he'll say like, "I don't think this, and I don't feel this, and I I don't want you to think at all that like this is the way I am." But he said sometimes I kind of feel like if God wasn't real, we could do whatever we want. I mean, we all think that. We just don't say it. It's so true. We think if God wasn't real, we could have so much fun. We could do so many things that God doesn't let us do. This is a misconception. God is the author of pleasure. He is the creator of joy. The emotions of joy that you experience were put in you, were created in you by God when he made us in his image. He is a God who experiences joy himself. And so God is not out to to steal us or rob us of our joy. He's actually out to show us fullness of joy, right? That's what Christ said. He said he promised abundant life, that your joy might be full. David understood this because he saw that in God's presence, there are pleasures forevermore. That in your presence is fullness of joy, right hand pleasures forevermore. And we should, we should remind ourselves of these things sometimes. Because I think oftentimes what we need to do is we need to have the, the spirit inside of us um, speak truth into our heart because our flesh is constantly rubbing us the other way. We've got to be reminded. We, we need this. If your mind has been conditioned for your entire life to believe that God is against your joy, it is a hard misconception to ignore. But we must. He is for our joy. He created laughter. He wants us to enjoy his creation as he planned it to be enjoyed. He knows that you will never find joy in its pursuit. 
You don't find joy just by going out and looking for it. God knows better. He knows that we find joy in fulfilling his purpose for us. The purpose for which we were created. And so, so tonight, I want you to warn you, the text we're in is not one of those feel-good, fuzzy texts. You're not going to read it and be like, oh man, I, I just, that just encourages my heart. Um, but it's good, it's important. We ought to feel the weight of our sinfulness, the weight of our sin, and we ought to repent and be humbled. So I believe what we find in these verses is essential and an often neglected step to the believer finding victory and true and lasting joy in their lives. James chapter 4 begins with an honest assessment of the human heart. We sin because we are sinners and our sin causes conflict in our relationships. The good news is found in verse 6. God is willing to give us more grace, greater grace. You say, how much grace will God give me? How much do you need? Exactly what you need, he will give you abundantly. But there's a condition. God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. No man or woman that comes to God arrogantly will ever be accepted by him. It is impossible. As long as we are convinced of our goodness, we will remain in our sins. And it is only when we humble ourselves and recognize our need of grace that we confess our sins and repent that we can be saved. And so the believer ought to come to God in humble repentance daily for his sins. And so we find in the next few verses, verses 7 and 8, James begins a series of commands. And I think these commands are a step-by-step guideline for us to show us what it looks like to humbly come to God to humbly live out the Christian life. A lot of discussion about these verses are are centered around the fact, is this written to unbelievers, or is this a text that's primarily for believers? And i got to tell you, I I thought about this a lot. I've I've looked at it every which way, and the conclusion I've come to is, I think it doesn't matter. I really don't think that we should put this huge delineation that we do between how a sinner comes to God in the first place and how believers now walk with God every day. We come to God and humbly repent of our sin. We ask for forgiveness. And then we, we seek to draw near to God to make him the Lord of our life. That, that's how we come to him. And then every single day of our life from that point on, we should be humbly walking with God, repenting of our sins when we sin, and, and staying with God. I'm not saying you get saved over and over again. You get saved once. When you're saved, you're saved. But how do we stay close to God and walk in fellowship with God? I think it's walking in humble repentance. And so I think these verses really apply to all of us, whether or not you know Christ or not. Verse number 7 tells us that we should submit ourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so James says, give up control of your lives, give up control of your thinking, and give them over to God. And then take up your shield of faith so that you can withstand the attacks of Satan. Be ready to stand against Satan. Seek God. Draw near to God. Clean up your actions, the outward man. Clean up your heart, the inward man. Our affections... And our actions must be involved in any attempt to come near to God. 
I think what Pastor was talking about this morning is, is so essential. We must understand that we should have affections for the things that God loves. And, and if our affections are being drawn away by these things that, that the world or Satan, that our flesh is distracted by constantly, like Solomon's was, you can take a guy who lived a good life for a long time, who walked with God for a long time, and if he's distracted by the wrong affections, all of a sudden, his whole, I mean, everything goes out the window. His actions, his words, everything. His testimony. We must love the right things. And so he says, you want to draw nigh to God? He'll draw nigh to you. But no, you got to clean up your hands. Purify your heart. And notice that in this verse, he calls them sinners who are double-minded. What a reminder for us. I mean, this is what we are without Christ. Sinners who are double-minded. Sinners who, who we want God. We want good things. We want eternal life. We want to walk with him. We want what we want. We want what our flesh wants. We want the sinful passions that are still there. And so we are so double-minded. And he says, clean that up. Verse number nine. He says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. You will not find that verse written on the side of your coffee cup. I mean, li- listen to it. There's nothing, there's nothing like encouraging. There's nothing good about this verse. Be afflicted, mourn, weep. You have laughter, turn that to mourning. And your joy to heaviness. And if we take that verse by itself, we, we would wonder, what is he talking about? Does God want us to be sad? Does God really want us to walk through this life in heaviness and, and sorrow and defeat and depression and humility and... Well, humility, um, humiliation. I mean, is that what God is that what God wants? Well, the first thing I want to say is this: Why not? If our theology revolves around our own momentary happiness, then we're in a lot of trouble. And so, if we would begin and say, "Well, there's no way God wants me to be sad," so I'm just going to move on to verse ten or eleven or twelve. Because I know that God doesn't, he doesn't mean I should be afflicted and mourn and weep. I know that God's not what You know what we've just done? We've just decided that because we don't, we think God wants me to be happy this very moment, this verse can't be true. Maybe God actually does want his people to weep and to mourn and to be afflicted. Maybe there are some things that are worth being sad about. Maybe there's a time in our life where being afflicted and mourning and weeping It's right. It's what we need to do, more than anything else. There is a time when believers should feel deep shame and guilt. And I fear that there are times that we see other believers feeling the guilt of their sin. And our first response is not not to help walk them through to repentance. It's to cheer them up. Oh, it's okay. We all do it. It's no big deal. God forgives you. Don't worry about your sin. Don't worry about the fact that that... It's okay, you're forgiven, so just let that be. Yeah, okay. Or maybe there's... Maybe God is providing... See, the world always tells us that guilt and shame are to be avoided at all costs. I, I believe God has given us those emotions for a reason. I think feeling guilt and shame over your sin is the right way to feel. And I think it should drive you to something. 
And if we learn to dismiss our guilt and our shame, if we learn to dismiss the feeling of sorrow and affliction that comes on us when we do wrong and when we are wrong or when we see others doing wrong, we're in trouble. We've missed something that God put there for a reason. It's not supposed to, I mean, I'm not saying you spend your life in affliction and mourning. I don't think that's what James is saying, but I think there's something to this. That when we sin, when we're thinking about our sinful nature and the, the sinful heart we have, there should be some pain involved. The word afflicted, it literally means to be wretched. It is to realize one's own miserable state. Right? Think for a second. Don't just pass by your depravity. Don't just pass by your sinfulness. But stop and, and consider your desperate need of salvation because you are so sinful. That's what he's saying. He said, be afflicted. Be wretched. Get to the bottom of that. Don't sugarcoat it, right? Don't paint it in a better light. Be willing to admit exactly who you are and what you are. He says, mourn. That is an inward grieving. This deals with our emotions. It is the right response. When we see our wretchedness, it should cause grief, sorrow in our hearts. We shouldn't just, just be like, oh yeah, you're right, I'm, I'm terrible, moving on. Like That should hurt. In fact, it should hurt so much that the next thing he says is weep. And the word is wail out loud. There, there's a word, a Greek word, that means to weep quietly. That's not the one he used. Right? He used the word to say wail out loud. It's the same word they'd use talking about wailing at a funeral. There's an outward response. The grief inside is so great that we see this outward response. And so realize your state. There should be an inward response to your wretchedness and an outward response to your sin as well. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Laughter to grief or sorrow, joy to sadness. Now, it doesn't make any sense if you read the rest of the Bible to say, well, I have joy in Christ, and he's saying, oh, no, that joy should be turned to sadness. He's not talking about that joy. In Job, we find that laughter is a gift from God. And so he's not talking about that laughter. What he's saying is there are times that, that even believers go out and we find joy and laughter and entertainment and excitement in such wicked and awful things. Sometimes that we find our joy in sin. We look forward to those things. He said, let your laughter be turned to grief. See that thing for what it is. Let your joy be turned to heaviness or sadness or sorrow. He's not showing up at a birthday party and saying, did I just hear you laugh? Are you having a good time? He's not. He's not, he's not that way. He's not a buzzkill. What he's saying is, if you're experiencing joy and laughter in the wrong places, you've got to change that. You sin because you're, you're sinners. This is what James has told us. You sin because you're sinners. But God jealously yearns over you. He will give you more grace if you'll humble yourself. And so submit to him. Resist the devil. Draw nigh to him. He'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then you be wretched and mourn and weep. You see the context? The context is, is that see yourself for what you are. See your sin. Humbly come to God for repentance. As you do that, 
really think of your wretchedness and your sinfulness and, and let it change you, let it affect you. And so his summary statement, I think, in verse number 10, is humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. The word humble is to be abased, to be brought low, to be depressed, or to be humiliated. Is this, what, this is what you must do to yourself. You must bring yourself down to the level that you ought to be at. Because everything in us wants to pull ourselves up. And he says, humble yourself. And then he says, he, God, will lift you up. He will exalt you. He will elevate you. And isn't that the paradox? Everything in our mind says, if I, if I want, I got to if I want to get somewhere, if I want to be something, I got to pull myself up, I got to bring myself up, I got to build myself up. So the Bible doesn't command us to build ourselves up. We're supposed to build others up, but never ourselves. It says we're supposed to humble ourselves and let God build us up. And, and this is the crazy thing. Do you ever think you can elevate yourself above what God can elevate you? Don't you understand? Don't you see that all of your Desire and all of your actions to elevate yourself are silly, ridiculous, especially when being compared to the God of heaven and how he could elevate you and exalt you. We do it to ourselves. You think we're going to take that job on? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. The text tonight is a sobering one, but it's healthy and right for us to think soberly about our sin. I think it's easy to think about another's sin this way. I think every one of us have been in a situation where we've looked at another person's sin and we said, I wish that person could see the destructiveness of their sin. I wish they could see where their sin is headed. Right? You, you've seen a guy with a great family and then you've seen them either get into drinking or get into to pornography or get into whatever and you can see that that sin is slowly tearing him and his family apart and you're like, why don't you see this? Right? Well, we're able to spot it in so many other people. And we don't believe that sin is having the same effect on us. And it just is. God hates sin because he knows that it's so destructive. He doesn't hate sin because he wants you to not have fun. It is good for us to be reminded that God does not take our sin lightly and neither should we. It is a good thing to remember that your sin is the reason that Christ was crucified. I'm really enjoying being able to sit down there and let the guys um, lead this and the, the ladies lead the singing because I, I look at the songs and I can think, man, that's exactly what I'm talking about tonight. And so we sung the song about how deep the Father's love for us. I thought seeing Christ on the cross and realizing that it was us shouting out, um, that's how we should see ourselves, that we're the ones that put him there. That's our, that's our sin. That's the effect of sin. That's what sin does. It puts a Savior on a cross. And so we should see our sin the way that it ought to be seen. And so here I want to give you three lessons very quickly. The first one is this. The right response to sin is heartfelt grief and sorrow. The right response to sin is heartfelt grief and sorrow. In Matthew chapter 26, Peter has just denied Christ three times. And when we're talking about things that should cause us shame and grief and sorrow... I think we'd say that, that telling a little girl that you don't know Christ after he's been with you and your best friend and your buddy and, and your savior and all for three years, I mean, I think that's pretty high up on the list, that disloyalty. 
In verse 35, it says, And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. He was weeping bitterly over his sin. And that was right. It was good for him to be weeping bitterly. You know that Peter, he didn't even recover from this right away. Right? When we look at Peter's life and we continue it on, and we see that Jesus um, showed himself to Peter, and he's one of the first ones, and that's, that's an amazing thing already. But when it was time for them to go back to work, do you know what Peter said? I'm going fishing. Do you know why Peter went to said he's going fishing? I don't think he said he's going fishing because Peter was like, yeah, I think fishing would just make a good living. I think Peter believed himself to be fully unqualified to serve Christ any longer. I don't think Peter was really being like, I don't know, ignorant or selfish when he wanted to go fishing. I think Peter was just humble. I can't do this anymore. I'm going fishing. I don't deserve. You know what Jesus did with the guy that was humble and weeping bitterly? He brought him back. He said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. He used, he used a guy like that. Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah is a throne room scene where Isaiah sees God in the throne. He sees the seraphims worshiping him. And he, and he said, when he saw all of this, then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The idea of woe is me is not like, whoa, that's awesome. It's not like that at all. It's like, what am I doing here? Woe is me. Look at me. I am undone. I am so wretched and unclean and gross. I shouldn't be here. It's, it's this response of like it, seeing yourself in the light of a holy and, and pure and perfect God. And he had the right response. I am so unclean, unclean lips. Well, in the midst of a people of unclean lips, I mean, we're all terrible. What are we doing, God? You know what God does? He doesn't say, no, Isaiah, you're wrong. You brushed your teeth today. Your lips are pretty clean. He didn't didn't act like he wasn't. Like, he recognized everything that Isaiah said is true, and then he cleaned him up. And then then God came and made Isaiah ready to be used and used him. How about in David's life? This is one of the greatest examples we have. David is such a terrible sinner. You can't think of too many sins that David wasn't guilty of. Really bad ones, too. Psalm 51, 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. What did he mean by that? Did he mean like, like I don't know, that he just, is just there all the time and it's not a big deal. I think what he was saying is, it, it, it grieves me. I think about it often. Right? I can't get it out of my head because I'm so sad that I would do such a horrible thing, that I'm such a horrible person. It's always before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. I think this is really important. He says, everything God you say bad about me, is absolutely right. I deserve nothing. I'm wholly, utterly sinful and deserving of all the judgment that you could pass on to me. It says in verse 5, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my brother conceive me. It says, Not only did I do terrible sins, but that's who I am. That is what I am. He got it right. 
And God forgives a guy like David. So later on, David is declaring God's praises and and declaring the praises and, and how blessed a person is if God has forgiven their iniquity. He knows that's, that was his only hope. The right response to sin is a heartfelt grief and sorrow. And we need to get back there when we sin. Yes, you've been saved, and that's wonderful and awesome. But when you sin now, when you're walking with God, it should cause you grief and sorrow. It should cause you to go back on your knees and humbly repent to God. The second thing we find in this text is clear, is the need for humility. I don't think we can overstate the desperate need for humility that mankind has. Uh, This is a problem that we all experience, and I think it's a problem behind a lot of other problems that we see in humanity. Nobody wants to need grace. And this is why some of our gospel presentations are so ineffective and almost misleading sometimes. We present a gospel and we say, listen, Jesus died for you. And if you'll just look to him and, and save him, he'll give you his grace. And people say, oh, sure, I'll take grace. Yeah, okay, why not? Well, give me some of that grace. And they never realize that they need grace. It's not just something that they can, like, give or take and leave if they want. And, like, maybe I'll be good enough by myself, but I, if I can, like, boost my chances with a little bit of grace, then I'll do that. It's not the deal. We miss the whole part about us being sinful and depraved. That we are in desperate need. And so it's like, I will accept it if it's offered, but I will not get down on two knees and beg for it. We need to see ourselves as people that need to get on two knees and beg for grace. We need to be humble. God lifting you up is equivalent to God giving you grace. This is what James is saying. God will give you grace. And it will never happen until we humble ourselves. Do you realize how often the Bible tells us to do this? Like, how often, almost exactly this verse, humble yourselves inside of God and he will lift you up, almost exactly this verse is echoed throughout Scripture. I'll give you a couple. Matthew 23, 12. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. He that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Jesus said that. In 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Humble yourself, God will exalt you. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Those are the people that God goes after. Those are the people that he he lifts up and he gives grace to. He revives. You don't believe me yet? Job 22.29, Proverbs 29.23, Proverbs 15.33, Proverbs 18.12, Proverbs 16.18, Luke 14.11, Luke 18.14, Isaiah 66.2, 2 Chronicles 7.14, Philippians 2.3-4, all of Psalm 113, Mary's prayer in Luke 1.46, Matthew in 20.16. The list goes on. All of those verses, they're all saying almost exactly, they're not just saying be humble. They're saying if you're humble, God will lift you up. It's amazing. The Bible says it over and over again. We should get this. Humble ourselves. So how do you humble yourself? How do we do this? It's great just to say humble yourself. And sometimes I think people think that humbling themselves just means to um, think that they're, they're not good at anything. right? That they can't do anything well. Or that they're ugly or stupid or whatever. That's not being humble. Humble is not just thinking like you're bad at stuff. Okay? Being humble is having a right view of God. 
seeing God for who he is, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, perfect, holy, righteous, seeing him as the just judge that will judge all mankind for every thought that any person ever had. A right view of God, and then a right view of man in light of God. If we can get those two things, this is who God is, this is who I am. That's how you humble yourself. When you see yourself as the wicked, awful sinner that, that desperately needs grace, and you've got it. That's humility. We must humble ourselves. And finally, we are reminded of the hope we have in a God who lifts up the broken and needy sinners. The path to true joy is not through frivolous joy. The path to lasting contentment is not through momentary pleasure. It's not a little bit of this and eventually I'll have a lot of it. Right? If, I, if I can go get a little bit of joy, eventually I'll have a lot of joy in that same thing. We all know that. We all know that if you pursue anything to find your joy, you ultimately find that thing empty. You ultimately find that thing gives you um, destruction and death. Even things, like Pastor said this morning, that aren't necessarily evil. If your affections and you're seeking joy in those things, eventually they will destroy. God knows this. And so what he says is, humble yourself and I will lift you up. Come to me. I'll give you joy. I'll give you abundant life. I'll take care of those things. What must you do? Just just repent. Come to me humbly. If we humble ourselves, there is a promise that should knock our socks off. should blow our minds. God exalts the humble? Who deserves to be exalted? Kings, maybe? Rulers? Heroes? Those who have perfect character, who have great honor, the humble. And those are the only ones. The humble is the only people that God exalts. Even when it talks about the exaltation of Jesus in Philippians 2, it connects it with his humility. That he humbled himself. And eventually he's exalted. And he's given a name above every name that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it's connected with this humility. As I think about this, I'm reminded of the woman who's caught in the act of adultery. I can't be in a more humble state, thrown in front of a crowd after being caught in the act of adultery, weeping, ready to be stoned to death, having a group of men surrounding her, yelling at her, calling her names, all those. I mean, that's, that's a rough spot to be in. And this is Jesus who takes her by the hand after he sent everybody else away. And he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Humble yourself. You'll be exalted. That is great hope. And I think sometimes we want the message, hey, all you got to do is come to God and he'll make everything awesome. And it doesn't matter how you think about your sin, how you think about yourself, and, and you'll find pleasure in the things that are actually going to bring you death. That's not the message of the Bible. God is not going to tell you something that's not true, right? The truth is, if we get rid of those things, we humble ourselves, we see them for what they are, we see ourselves for what we are, and we come to him, he will exalt us. And so what does it look like? I think it means that sometimes we've got to get on our knees before God. I think maybe we need to do this more often. We should confess our sins. Name them. The words that you said that weren't right. The attitude that you had. The motivation that you had. 
the way you treated this person, the thing that you knew that you should do but you didn't do, the person that you knew you should share the gospel with but you were too afraid, name it. Okay? Come before God and confess your sin. Confess the thoughts and the intents of your heart. If we, if you're a person who you think about the thoughts and intents of your heart and you're like, yeah, they're pretty good, I don't know if you're a human being. I really, I don't, like the more I know people and the more that people are honest, I talk to the people that I think are like, like mature believers and they will never say that the thoughts and intents of their heart are pure. They don't think that. They know. They know better. And so we must be confessing these things. We must come to God, humbly confess. When you are thoroughly convinced of your own wretchedness and your unworthiness, cry out to the God who stands ready to forgive the humble cry of the weak and sick and broken and lost. God is not against your joy. He's not trying to ruin your life. And we are not being told to spend the rest of our lives wailing loudly over our sin. But I think there is a time to do that. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Verse 4, it says, A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And when we're in that situation where we've sinned, we ought to weep. We ought to be wretched, afflicted, to mourn, to turn our laughter to grief and our joy to heaviness. And we ought to come before God and repent. Because there is nothing like being lifted up by God. I encourage you tonight to cling to the promise, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Let's pray.